This podcast is hosted by Chris Finkston and Spencer Oliver. They are both experienced paramedics. They've done everything from 911 ground ambulance to volunteer fire department work and are both currently flight paramedics. This podcast reviews scenarios based on real calls run by real out-of-hospital clinicians. Details are changed to protect the privacy of those involved and to present educational opportunities to the listener. This podcast is EMS 2020. Alright everybody, welcome to not just another episode of EMS 2020, but maybe maybe the episode of EMS 2020. Because today it's not just Spencer and I, which is always good news for the show. Uh, today we have an, an extra special guest that you guys have been just throwing questions at. Uh, she will answer them today as well as help us muddle through an amazing call. Today we have with us Mandy Krikora. Mandy, say hello. Hi everybody. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Manny, just to make sure I got this right, you are you are kin. You are another flight paramedic, correct? I am. Perfect. And Mandy, from uh, kind of the way we ran into each other is that uh, Mandy works uh, with an organization or is working with an organization right now called Link to Learn. And between Mandy and Link to Learn, you guys are putting on an amazing experience in Denver, Colorado. Can you tell us just a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, so I Link to Learn is a cadaver lab uh, based out of Denver that we do whole body in, whole body out with our donors. And we use them for uh, training and education, uh, predominantly in the medical and pre-hospital field. Uh, we have two beautiful bariatric cadavers right now that um, are getting ready to, we're getting ready to thaw out so we can use for a bariatric airway lab. So we're going to be uh, hosting a difficult airway boot camp uh, on these two bariatric cadavers. Awesome. That, and that is so one of the things like Spencer and I have talked about this time and time again on EMS 2020 and we believe it. And that is cadaver labs are second to none. And they're hard to get opportunities, I think, for a lot of uh, providers. So if you get an opportunity, go do it. And on top of that, you guys are bringing bariatric cadavers, which is even rarer uh, is rarer an actual word i don't know is it rarer it is now it is now yeah, yeah it is now on it's ems 2020 yeah yeah it's more rare it is it even more rare oh why yeah, there you go you someone cooks a lot of steaks you know uh, but anyway it's more rare what a bariatric simman 3g oh no no <laughs> uh, I, I have my own personal opinion uh, about a lot of the uh, sim mannequins out there i think they're valiant efforts but they don't <laughs> compare they don't compare uh to a cadaver because there's one thing that simulates the human body uh really well uh, would be a human body so uh, anyway, so Manny, I can't thank you enough for putting that on. Uh, when when is this class being put on? It's going to be uh, we're going to be running two classes a day, four hours a piece. It's going to be April 5th, 6th, 8th and 9th. Uh, we decided we didn't like the 7th, so we just threw it out. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that'll give that would give shift workers the opportunity to across the week to be able to work their shift and then potentially hit one of the classes. That is awesome. And this is going to be in the Denver, Colorado area? It is. It's going to be right downtown in the heart of Denver. Um, and then there's going to be classes from 8 to noon and then again from 1 to 5. All right. Perfect. So in April, uh, first part of April there, everybody in Denver, Colorado, an amazing opportunity. We will drop a link in the description of the episode as well as on our social media. Uh, go there and get signed up. Find a way to be there. This is not an opportunity that comes around. And uh, I would say any cadaver lab is fantastic. A bariatric cadaver lab is uh, it's a loss for words. It's a lottery ticket just waiting for you to pick it up. So find your way down to uh, Denver, Colorado. And um, with that, uh, Mandy, if you feel we've gotten the 
perfect amount of information out there. We're going to move on to some Q&A. Absolutely. I'm ready. All right. Perfect. So we asked everyone to uh, ask questions. We kind of asked them to focus on airway uh, and airway focusing. They did. So our first question is going to come uh, from uh, John Henley. So uh, John asks, he says he has recently read about EMS providers using a pediatric bag valve mask for all age groups, including adults, as a way to prevent overeager personnel on scene from over ventilating. Uh, Mandy, what do you think about that? Because Spencer and I have talked about this and we've heard about it. I, I, I'm I'm not the hugest fan. I see some limitations, but I'm really curious what you have to say on it. Yeah, I think, uh, do, you, do you use Buretrols or are you familiar with Buretrols? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we are. So this is the airway equivalent of, of a Buretrol. So when you use a Buretrol, it is a pre-designated volume for fluid so that your fluid can't escape or get away from you. It's kind of a safety measure, a stopgap. And I feel like the pediatric BVM in use on adults and, and bariatrics as well is kind of that, that airway equivalent. My understanding with the pediatric BVM is that, you know, this is sort of a system implementation. They don't want uh, providers to cause barotrauma because they're going to go in we all know we, you know, we're, we're all amped up. We just took someone's airway or we're having to BVM somebody and they're squeezing just the crap out of the bag, trying to, you know, like, oh God, the sats are down at the sixties. So I have to, you know, breathe for them for like, you know, 30 times a minute, really fast, right? big honking breaths. Uh, Chris described it as the goose yeah. alarm no. that, yeah. when it, that overpressure alarm and they're just squeezing the crap out of it, trying to, you know, to get those sats up or, you know, the end title down or whatever the situation may be. And so it seems like this is a system change to stop providers from doing that. Like, what are your thoughts on that? I, I absolutely agree. I think that it's a, a safe maneuver to try to use a smaller reservoir bag on your BVM. But what we're essentially doing is, is we're, we're dumbing it down. We're, we're dumbing down the equipment to the provider to make them feel better, more, more comfortable with not overventilating rather than training the provider up to the equipment. Uh, there's been thousands and thousands of cases where using an adult size BVM has worked just fine for tidal volumes and rate. You're going to be responsible for a tidal volume and a rate regardless what you have in your hand. Uh, but I also think that with the reservoir being much smaller, yes, it could potentially be adequate uh, tidal volumes and it could be a lung protective strategy. But if your patient is requiring higher tidal volumes or, um, you know, a little bit more than the pediatric reservoir can provide, then that will just right from the get-go be self-limiting. Oh, I see. I agree with you 100%. I guess I feel it's kind of like a system that's saying I have less faith in paramedics <laughs> to do this properly. So yeah. I'm just going to take the option away. And it's one of those things where like, I understand like if you have a lot of cases of uh, pulmonary barotrauma that's being caused by adult BVMs, I get it. But to me, the solution is to get out there and train, not take away an option. And I think what you, I think it's one of those things where we're, we're leaving one area of risk and jumping right into another um, without really addressing what the problem is. Absolutely. And we're only taking one element of it and we're, we're hyper focused on the volume of it. But how many, how many agencies out there actually use peat valves with their BVMs? 
Because it's going to be a lot more difficult to create that barrel trauma. Um, you know, you can, you can bag the crap out of them and squeeze every last milliliter out and you can have the guy that's, that's roided out squeezing the bag. And sure, you could potentially create barrel trauma, but many, many agencies are still not actively using peat valves on their BVM every time. Uh, so yeah. it's really going to be up to the capability of whoever is delivering the ventilations. And I think training is a solution, not creating a smaller reservoir for us to squeeze, because I think that we'll naturally try to kind of overcompensate for that and squeeze a little bit harder because it's smaller. So are we really gaining any any progress there or are we just kind of changing the equipment a little bit and then we're going to find a new way to to mess the lungs up? <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, don't worry. We, yeah. we always like to innovate in EMS. Provide me a way and I will find a way to fuck up the call. That's, uh, <laughs> that's why I'm here. <laughs> I think this is actually probably a good segue then into uh, John Hanley's next question. And, and to me, this is kind of going to go right in that training pocket. Uh, should providers move uh, move towards superglottic airways as a mainline airway due to low success rates with traditional intubation. Ooh, this is oh dang. Yeah, th- mm-hmm. this is uh, this is this is some. So let's draw some lines in the sand here. This will be interesting. Yeah, are All you right. team SGA or are you team uh, intubate? Let's go. Yeah, I'm. I'm team ETT. I'm. I'm team intubate all the way. Uh, you are going to be right. very hard pressed to find me going to the SGA side. And the reason being that superglottic airways, they definitely have a place in pre-hospital EMS. They they certainly can provide uh, a rapid rescue airway if we need that. However, the gold standard in obtaining an airway, a, a definitive airway, is still endotracheal intubation. Yeah. And I, I think, and maybe to clarify a little bit what Henley means, I think Henley's talking about like when people are running code 99s and instead of even trying an ET, they're just dropping in a King airway and, and going from there. And I think this kind of goes back to what you're saying earlier, Mandy, is that if we start seeing failures rates, you know, may, maybe the answer is more increase your training as opposed to take away options. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think in situations where you have like more rural BLS only systems, SGAs are fantastic. There's not going to be anybody there for a while that can place an ET tube and there's a place. But I think um, in a lot of situations, because the struggle that I have had with SGAs is they work really great on mannequins, but almost, and this is my personal this is my personal experience. I don't have a study on this one, um, but it just seems that whenever I drop an SGA, there's always this, is this working kind of thing? <laughs> like, are we getting chest rise? I still don't have any stats. Is this thing doing anything? Is the balloon staying inflated? You know, and it's kind of one of those things to where uh, I just don't get the good comfy feeling versus when I place a tube, it's in the trachea. I've never had an appropriate place tube and not, well, I'm not going to say that. I have had tubes. I've had the troubleshoot. Sure. But it is a more rare occurrence to me. And that's where I see taking the option away, uh, taking an innovation away uh, as an option entirely, I, I, I think is a bad route or, fo- or, or, yeah. I, my, my stance on this is that there's probably a good number of cases where an SCGA or excuse me, an SGA works fine. Like, you know, it's like, yeah, this, this wasn't really an, like, this doesn't necessarily need to be an airway issue or, or whatever. Like the, the, it fits and it works just fine, but there are situations in which ETT is preferable, you know, like burn patients. Oh yeah. You know, like, uh, you know, patients whose airway is like swelling shut, like with, you know, like if you're yeah, having to do like, exactly. 
those those sort of situations, you don't want to be like, well, all I have is a thing that, oh, nope, that won't work now. Yeah. Well, and then think about think about your facial trauma patients as well. SGAs yeah. and facial trauma um, are not the greatest in in my experience because pretty much what you end up doing is you have bleeding into the upper airway, and then pretty much you just seal that bleeding in there, and it's it's not going to go down the stomach, it's not going to come out their mouth, so it's just going to go only into the lungs, and that's sure. no good either. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you're right. The the answer is not to give us a piece of equipment that's easier to use so I can feel better about myself. I think the answer is if there is a high level of uh, missed intubations, then that's a training issue. Right. It may not be an education issue, but it's a training issue. And that needs to be addressed. Well, we're a rural area. We don't run that many calls. Well, that's great news. If you don't run that many calls, that means you have more time to be able to train. Absolutely. Especially... If you can head down to Denver, Colorado and do a cadaver lab. Sorry, I just figured it was a perfect time. Um, So, uh, though I am serious, if you can get there, get there. Um, But uh, let's see. All right. So finally, let's go ahead and wrap up uh, the last of John Henley's uh, questions here. Uh, Is there any interesting future options for airway management? What's new in this area? Man, that's a broad topic. Um, I don't know if there's any new earth shattering or game changing devices uh, that are coming out. Um, But as we kind of mentioned in our last question, innovation success rates are are all over the place. Uh, Some do it better than others. Uh, Video laryngoscopies become really popular for programs that have the resources to be able to obtain them. Um, But they also come with, with limitations as well. I think that... If, if I could dictate the future of, of airway, it would be that we kind of start a revolution and go back to the basics. I think that we've gone away from really perfecting our skill and our recognition of a good airway assessment, our good mask seal on our BVM, our two-handed technique, um, adequate positioning of the airway, uh, pre-oxygenation, and we Amen. have we've gotten that uh, it's, it was taken. The place is is technology. We have buttons and beeps and lights and flashing and numbers. And, and we're so fixated on intubating. And that's the end all be all. We need to get this patient intubated. That's all. That's all we care about. The end goal intubation. But it's not. It's it's oxygenation. It's alveolar recruitment. It's being able to get them enough oxygen that they can circulate it. And I think that Absolutely. we're forgetting that as time goes on and we have all these new great uh, tricks and toys and maneuvers that we need to go back to basics. So as far as the future goes, I would love to see uh, us really hit hard back on uh, on where we started. You know, when's the last time that you looked down at your hand technique and really evaluated how well you ventilate a patient with a BBM? But what EMT school? That's probably the last time that I... I paid attention to it. A cadaver lab, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, that's true. One one of the paramedics went like, what are you doing? And I was trying to BVM the patient. And I'm like, well, I'm BVMing. And he's like, no, you're you're not. No, you're not. You're not. (laughs) You are making this patient's lips very chapped. That's what you're doing right now. (laughs) You are not ventilating this patient. You know, to be honest, uh, you know, I was surprised. I I literally could not get a seal on this, uh, you know, on this, on this. It's not really a patient because they're dead, but you know, in the scenario, it's a cadaver. Yeah. I couldn't get the seal on it, and you know, like it, it really kind of reinforced that two 
two-person assisting. There's kind of two questions I want to do together, but let's skip a little bit because we're talking about going back to basics and talking about hand techniques. Uh, here's a question from Ashlyn Odell. It says, from a female standpoint, innovation is a little difficult. It's hard maneuvering a heavy head with a tiny blade. What are some tips you have for blade manipulating and successful innovation? Boy, I can't think of a better person to answer that question than you, Mandy. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, as far as... Uh as her Ashlyn's question, um, first thing that I I listen to is is tiny blade. Uh, that that may be something to consider right off the bat. Uh, bigger is losing all your leverage. That's all your leverage. Uh, my technique personally, when I first started intubating, it was pretty difficult for me as well. I had a bent wrist. I was just trying to muscle everything, and and I tended to kind of rock back a little bit because I was just again, trying to muscle it. But as I got better at airways and intubations, um, one of my mentors taught me to keep my wrist completely straight and then kind of drive that handle of the blade or your your hand up towards the, the corner where the wall meets the ceiling. If you go kind of in a diagonal upward direction uh, versus straight up or straight back, then it it uses a lot of the larger muscle groups in your arm, but it also is allowing you to lift the tongue and the jaw up out of the way so you can view your cords. And that's really the goal there. It's not to lift the entire head up off of the floor. It's just to displace that tissue so that you're able to see to to get a definitive airway. I also struggled with the uh, the strength aspect. And it turns out that, uh, you know, when you when you do the technique you described, which was what was taught to me later on by a, you know, a good friend of mine. Um, the other thing is if you're having to lift the head that much and that, you know, where you're physically shaking, maybe position the patient in a position that better yeah. suits that so that you're not having to work that hard. Like How about this? Pillows and. <laughs> I have never been practicing an innovation technique where the solution was to add more muscle. It's, it, it, that's never, that's never been thing. I'm just waiting for someone to try it. When you're going to hear a pop and a jaw is going to just stick in the ceiling. Like it's going to fly through and it's going to look like a dart. Someone's going to be like, well, that was too much pressure. But uh, I got the tube. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I got the tube. I got the tube. Sir, you should find a great dentist. Um, but uh, so let's kind of move on. So we have kind of a, I'm going to combine two questions here. So uh, Rain Libby, they ask, how would you handle a ruptured esophageal varices patient? Would you attempt to RSI or would a cricothyrotomy be appropriate due to potential for no visual confirmation from a direct laryngoscopy intubation? John Dick asked, uh, in what situations is a surgical airway picked over a crash airway? I'm assuming crash airway, he's meaning like a superglottic airway of, of some sort. Um, I, I think he, I think what he's meaning by that is where you just essentially go in with the tube. Your, your goal is to right. intubate the patient. So, and I think we're going to be able to cover kind of both questions here. So, uh, first of all, I'll start this question with this. Uh, I have had one esophageal varices patient. I can tell you this, a lot of blood. I didn't know what was going on. We got him to the ER and he died later. Uh, sorry, uh, that's, that is that is my esophageal varices um, uh, experience. But so, Manny, I guess we can kind of roll this into, all right, copious amounts of blood in the airway. Like, what do you do? Well, uh, I have a very good friend named uh, jo uh, Dr. Jim or James Ducanto, who uh, has come up with a salad maneuver. Have Have you heard of, of the salad technique or salad maneuver? We have heard of salad. The salad abbreviation 
is for superglottic airway decontamination. And it's a maneuver that you lead in with the suction catheter first, clear, clear the path, clear the road for you, if you will, to be able to see down to the cords, whether you have a contaminant that is stomach contents or secretions, blood. And then once you see, once you see the cords, you can pass the tube, but then you take that suction catheter and kind of, you, you, you're, Stick it into the goose. You tube the goose with the suction catheter, constant suction on the esophagus, and still um, you get a nice clear view of the airway like a hot dog down a hallway, and you're managing the bleeding as well as obtaining um, your intubation. So for esophageal varices, um, I don't think that it's unrealistic to say you can still get good visualization if you have proper decontamination techniques. Uh as far as a crike goes, I think across the board, my answer would be the same, that if I opt to cut, it's because I am not able to oxygenate, ventilate, or intubate. Now, that could be I've gone down my own airway algorithm and I've tried and it's not successful, or you take one look in and you say, you know, we just, we don't have time to to mess around with this because it's going to directly affect patient outcome, then go towards uh, cutting and doing a crike. But uh, really the, the bottom line is if you can't oxygenate, if you can't ventilate, if you can't intubate, then you cut. I like that too. I think it's, um, and I think like you're going to run into those situations when you have a lot of airway obstruction. Um, I think, you know, specifically to Ashlyn's question, I've done a lot of suctioning and if you really get good at suctioning, you can clear a lot more blood a lot quickly out of an airway than, than I think we give ourselves credit for, especially if you're paying attention to vomit is the hard one blood for me, in my experience, blood has come pretty freely. Um, Vomits where you get chunkies and then things don't want to do what they want to do. All right. So we got another question from Carlos. Carlos is an EMT starting paramedic school. Good job, Carlos. Uh, In the next few months, can you guys talk more about uh, the benefits and downsides of RSI, rapid sequence innovation, and DSI, delayed sequence innovation, and specific use cases for either? Oh, good. Thanks. Yeah. Chris doesn't Uh, have strong feelings. No. (laughs) Way to go, Carlos. Thank you. Yeah. You you know, before... (laughs) Spencer hates this. Uh, it's, yeah, it's one of those things where when I started in this, Spence just rolls his eyes and just, uh, I don't know, he starts walking out in the streets randomly, like when buses drive by, like, come on, <laughs> hoping he can just get lucky and get hit by one. Uh, Mandy, what are your thoughts on the difference between RSI and DSI? Uh, there's really no difference. <laughs> it's pretty much the same yes! thing. <laughs> yeah. And she is right. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, Mandy. <laughs> <laughs> I say pretty much because uh, rapid and delayed, I think the only real difference is apneic oxygenation via nasal cannula. Rapid sequence innovation yeah. is somebody who uh, has been relatively well pre-oxygenated and can hold their own sats. And um, a DSI is going to be, you're going to take a little bit more time. We're going to resuscitate a little bit more, pre-oxygenate, get their sats up, and then go into your combination of medications in order to sedate and paralyze. I think a lot of the fixation on RSI versus DSI comes from people believing the only way to oxygenate my patient properly is with an ET tube. An ET tube is a fantastic way to keep that airway and to keep oxygenating and ventilating, especially as you're moving them around and as they go throughout the rest of their care. But there are so many other options to get that oxygen saturation up before you even have to worry about because when you're in the middle of intubating, you're not ventilating at all. Yeah. 
And so if they're already down on that SAO2, you have potential to cause an anoxic brain injury and then be like, yay, I got the tube. You know, yeah. like that's, Absolutely. that's not great. Um, but yeah, it's one of those things where, uh, yeah, as you muscle their jaw right off their face. Um, but anyway, yeah, and it's one of those things, though, but I think we've kind of made this kind of silly division between RSI and DSI. And I think what people need to focus on is it isn't really rapid sequence intubation. What we want is rapid sequence oxygenation. Get them oxygenated first, then roll into your intubation. If they're already oxygenated, great. You don't have to do those steps. You can skip them. But if they're not, then you need to slow it down and get them oxygenated. Okay, I'll calm down. <laughs> preach, preach. Hallelujah. Oh, Amen. Oh, we got an expert to agree with me. This is amazing. Today's <laughs> a good day. Um, benefits are going to be that you can you can take over the the patient's airway. That if something uh, somebody that you historically hadn't been able to intubate unless they went into a respiratory or cardiac arrest and do a crash airway, we can now control it a little bit better to be able to secure an airway. Uh, downsides to it, of course, are going to be um, patient condition uh, adequate resuscitation prior to even putting a blade in and intubating, uh, making sure that their blood pressure is good, making sure that they're not hypoxic, that their their SATs are at least 90% or better. We need to recruit those alveoli to be able to circulate and exchange O2 and CO2 um, because chances are if we're taking over their airway uh, that they've become atelectatic for some reason or hypoventilated. And so we need to get them back up to um, a, a, a doable, a feasible number on their SAO2, 90 and above. Downsides would be if you miss the tube. If you can't get it and you start to ventilate, well, now you've just paralyzed your patient and that's going to paralyze everything, all of the openings, including um, the orifice to your stomach. So you stand to fill the stomach with a lot of air as well. Um, so I think that any any time that you put your hands on your patient with the intent to secure or take over, assume their airway, then that becomes your only job at that point is to get it. Yep. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, if you go I, into it not saying, hey, I'll give it the old college try. I'll see if I can get the tube. They may be anterior. I don't know. Um, that's one of my favorites because uh, yeah. name me a, an airway that is not anterior. But if you... <laughs> right. If you go in with a mindset that you are going to get this tube, whether it's by, um, you know, the plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D, or plan E, you're going to get the tube. You're going to get the airway. I think um, you usually end up being pretty successful at it. Yeah, I, I, I think one of the things that trips people up is like, when do I use DSI versus RSI? And it really is that like pre-oxygenation aspect. Like if you can pre-oxygenate the patient prior to giving any medications, then you don't need to DSI. But if your patient's like hypoxic to the point where they're combative or they're just, you know, combative because of, you know, their combativeness, <laughs> like whatever condition is making them combative to where you cannot oxygenate the patient, then DSI is a good option to invoke there where you give them a sedating dose of ketamine and you control that airway. And then you get those sets up so that you can intubate. Like that's the only, that's the only piece that where DSI is cool, where it's helpful, <laughs> where it might be helpful to have people, you know, to have that kind of pathway laid out. 
I guess. Absolutely. And our patients are not suffering because we don't intubate. Our patients uh, potentially are suffering because of the hypoxia. The hypoxia is going to kill them, not that lack of a tube. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, You know what? Show's done. That's all I needed out of this (laughs) was just to hear that. That's all good. See you guys. I'm just kidding. All right. So Demetrios, this is our last question, guys. Demetrios. uh, Demetrios is uh, in paramedic school right now, which is awesome. But there's a lot of controversy going on about the effectiveness slash harm of using CPAP in severe asthmatics. The argument centers around the idea that asthma is a problem in which you have trouble getting air out and that CPAP makes the patient work even harder to expire air. Uh, Demetrio says that they have seen uh, that uh, it is still indicated in most protocols and that there's been studies that say it improves patient out- outcome. Uh, if CPAP is beneficial, when is the most appropriate time to initiate it? And what is the science behind it? I will say right off the bat, I am a pro CPAP for asthmatic person. That is where I stand. I agree. I am. I am like the pressure queen. That's that's if there's ever a soapbox yep. that I have, it is it is pressure, whether it's CPAP or PEEP. PEEP is CPAP. Um, but but pressure is always a good thing, even in your severe asthmatics. Um, I don't yeah. think the problem is getting air out. That is one of the symptoms of it. But the actual problem is you have these really inflamed, pissed off. Uh, narrowed airways that are full of dehydrated thick mucus plugs and they've been breathing 40 times a minute for the last few hours so they're very dry so i think it's twofold one the pressure is what they're going to need to overcome the impedance of the swelling and the mucus plugs but they're also going to need their inhaled beta agonists as well as a lot of fluid. They've lost a lot of fluid just in their tachypnea. So rehydrating them will loosen up some of those mucus plugs as well as the pressure will overcome that impedance and will start to recruit alveoli again. So I'm absolutely an advocate for CPAP in asthmatics, knowing how to uh, treat the asthma attack, knowing which different parts to really focus in on. And I, I am a big proponent for the pressure and for the fluid. Um, but yes, 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 yes. CPAP and severe yeah, asthmatics and, all day, every day. All right. And, and just, uh, just kind of help my brain out uh, a little bit. I mean, I'm obviously for this, but th- there's a physical, when that pressure gets involved and you have those inflamed, angry airways, uh, is there not, I mean, there's a physical function of the air to literally push those airways open, correct? And then in, in the in so, uh, upon exhaling with CPAP, you don't have the drop in pulmonary pressure that allows them to close up again. Yes, absolutely. Okay, it perfect. keeps them open. All right. Well, Mandy, thank you so much for answering all those questions. Um, Are you good to stick around and help us get through a call? I suppose I could do that. All right. Perfect. Uh, So with that, we do have uh, a call today. And uh, Spencer, Spencer's going to bring the words. I I brought the words a few times recently, and and apparently that was a few times. That was enough. And so it's uh, it's on to Spencer. Back to Spencer now. All right. Well, this call takes place in an area served by a private ambulance company staffed with a medic slash EMT combination. This is uh, this unit is backed up by a large fire department staffed with ALS providers. The fire department responds to almost every call an ambulance would, uh, though the ambulance providers are pretty well established as the PIC on every medical call. So. 
A call is dispatched around 7 p.m. for an early 60s female reported to have an altered mental status. Additional notes, the 911 caller is one of the patient's roommates who states that they called home to check on the patient as the patient was unusually tired this morning. They report that the patient answered but sounded very sleepy slash confused. Okay. Uh, at least enough to alarm them to call 911. The patient uh, does have a known history of diabetes, so that probably explains the phone call. Uh, all right. There is a hide key on the premises. A large hospital is only 15 minutes away from the address. All right. So, uh, Chris and Mandy, 99 times out of 100, if this is the information you have, what's this end up being? Oh, I don't know about you, Mandy, but I'm thinking sleepy person with diabetes is probably a low CBG. That's that's always yeah. my guess going in. Cold and clammy, <laughs> give them candy. Absolutely. There you that, go. Ooh, what? I like that. I had never heard that before. This is oh, most whoa, whoa, quotable what? episode ever, too. <laughs> Hot and dry, Cold give them eye. Cold and clammy, give them candy. Oh, man. I just need to walk around places cold and clammy and get free candy. <laughs> I mean, uh, it is the Pacific Northwest, so it likely is raining every uh, Halloween. So that checks that's, out. That that's fair. Checks out. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. No, uh, you know, low blood sugar eh, seems like it'd probably be the thing. Anyway. The ambulance and a fire engine arrive at the residence. The residence is a suburban home in an average suburban neighborhood. The team makes their way up a short but steep driveway. They locate the hide key and then head in through the front door into a split-level house. All right, there is a small set of steps leading into the living room, and there, in the middle of the room, in a large easy chair, sits, or rather sleeps, the patient. Hmm. This is a huge easy chair with all the extra cushions, several layers of towels on the seat and on the back. And ne right next to the chair is all the necessary accoutrements, like the nearby trash can, a small table with a uh, cardboard box filled with vanilla Ensure, TV remote, laptop computer, etc. To me, that is always the sign, like the sign that there are mobility issues, or maybe this isn't the greatest house in the world, is whenever there's a trash can in an atypical place, like the middle of a living room. That, to me, is just one of those things where I walk in, I'm like, oh, I see that. There's medical history going on here. There is something <laughs> going on. Have you ever looked in that trash can? It consists of very few things. It's going to be Kleenex for one. You'll have Kleenex and then you'll have a random op, like a random thing that doesn't feel like it belongs in a trash can, like like a mag light, like a perfectly good flashlight. To the point <laughs> where like, if I pulled that out, would it work? I mean, I'm not going to because I want to know what happened to this flashlight that someone would throw it away. Like was someone just like, no, batteries need changing. Fuck it. Get a new one. You know, and like that was it. Yeah. Or anyway. Those are my key indicators that like the, the trash can in the middle of the living room is a key indicator that something is askew for me. Oh, oh yeah. She yeah. lives there. She lives in that chair, doesn't she? Yeah. yeah oh, yeah, exactly. I will step over a dead body as if it's nothing. And then I will see that and think that's the weird thing. The trash can in the middle of the living room. Yeah. I think the thing is, is that if you've been in EMS for, you know, like, I don't know, more than a week at this point, you probably have seen this chair. Not, I mean, not this chair, but a chair just like it. I can yeah. smell With it. With a patient. Who oh. <laughs> exactly? <laughs> she calls so much <laughs> to a patient who will fit this next description. All right, the patient is noted to be a short and morbidly obese patient, estimated to weigh about four hundred plus pounds. 
She looks possibly pale in the low lighting of the home, and she appears to be sleeping peacefully in her chair. Her breathing, quote, looked normal, and we'll put a pin in that point. Uh, (laughs) The lead medic on this call, we're going to call Bob the Builder, kneels down in front of the patient and touches her shoulder, waking her up. The patient opens her eyes and appears confused, but pretty unperturbed by the number of uniformed people that have just suddenly appeared in her home. Uh, Bob the Builder introduces themselves, tells the patient why they are there, which is essentially, your friend called us to come check on you. They were really worried and said you weren't feeling well this morning and that you haven't been answering their calls. The patient nods drowsily and says, I'm just tired. Can you tell me what day it is? And the patient shakes her head no. Can you tell me where you are? The patient is asleep. Bob wakes her up again and asks her again. And she says, well, I'm at home. Do you know what year it is? And the patient takes a moment, but does give the correct year. So while Bob the Builder starts moving on uh, to construct his uh, history of present illness, the team and the fire department and his partner kind of jump in and participate and start obtaining vitals. So here are the vitals. The heart rate is, excuse me, the patient is 90% uh, on room air Hmm. for their SpO2. Heart rate is 90. It's sinus rhythm, but with a wide QRS. Blood pressure is triple question mark over triple question mark via the non-invasive BP cuff on their monitor. Did they hit the button at least seven more times to try and see if they could get a good number? Dude, you know. And then just implicitly trust whatever shows up? I mean, as long as the number looks reasonable. (laughs) As long as it means they don't have to do anything. Uh, respirations are recorded as 26 shallow and not, uh, non-labored. And this is kind of where I want to bring in that point, you know, like, uh, just because somebody's not breathing, like (sighs) doesn't mean that they're not breathing fast. People can very quietly breathe very fast, like surprisingly, you know, like really Mm -hmm. shallow, low tidal volume breaths. And you're like, oh, that doesn't look that fast. And then you actually kind of take a moment. And if you take the time to just kind of really look at it and count it, then you'll kind of go like, oh, actually, they are breathing kind of fast. Okay. Uh, Yeah. And and so that was one of the things where, you know, Bob kind of walked in and went like, it didn't look like they were breathing that fast. But then, you know, on that second, second piece, you know, like, hey, yeah, so 26 a minute, he kind of looked back and went like, oh, really? Huh. Oh, yeah, she is breathing fast. Anyway, um, so skin is recalled as being warm, pale, and dry, and a CBG is taken, and drum roll. Okay. 170. Okay. So, uh, Chris, Mandy, uh, what are you thinking at this point? I got to put the candy away. That's not the problem. Not the problem. Just eat the candy. <laughs> Chris is in the background. All right, Mandy, it's all you. Chris is in the background eating his candy. Hey, did anybody just get any lung sounds at this point? They did not get lung sounds. They did sounds. not get lung sounds. Okay. The first thing that I that comes to mind for me is you've got this great description of the uh, of the house and where she's sitting and the trash can and the mag light and all the things, but for a morbidly obese patient... I find many times they have sleep apnea. Just the yeah. physiology of the obesity um, can cause yeah. that. So, is there a CPAP machine around? And and so sleeping can can 
oftentimes be a lot more musical. So for sh- for quiet respirations that are shallow and rapid, uh, that's something that I would want to explore a little bit more. Yeah, see if they, yeah, see if that, because to me, what I'm seeing here is I'm seeing an inappropriate SAO2. I mean, 90% is not the lowest that anyone in this room has ever seen, of course, but 90% is one of those things where you're like, huh, something is askew here. And so for me, I think it's like the third episode in a row that I've kind of brought up my general approach. To me, like, like at, at the basic level, the chief complaint here is an altered LOC. So I usually start with like my my first thing is, does it have fuel supply? Does the brain have fuel supply? And that's going to be blood pressure, oxygen uh, and CBG. And the CBG is fine. The blood pressure, we have no idea because it's just question marks. But the heart rate's 90, which isn't crazy. Uh, but the oxygenation is 90 percent. And that kind of bothers me with what's going on right there. Um, the next thing I check then is, is it broken? And I will say like, I didn't even think sleep apnea, but that's actually a strong point, especially someone that lives in a chair. Sometimes people live in a chair because they have sleep apnea. Yeah. And I mean, you fall asleep, your saturations drop, and now you're you're altered. So the first thing I would do for this person is start fixing, I'd, I'd throw a, a mask or a cannula, something to start getting their oxygen up. Hmm. Um, that's the first thing I would do. But the next thing I would start thinking about is I start going like, all right, it's got fuel supply. Uh, at this point, with the exception of the oxygen, what's the next thing? Okay, that is, is it broken? Is it a trauma? Is it stroke? Or is it sepsis? And for me, for her, I would start thinking about like, I would really want lung sounds because to me, that next step is, do we have like a pneumonia that's dropping our saturations and causing sepsis, you know, it's where she can be altered because I want lung sounds really bad and I want a blood pressure really bad. Uh, So that's kind of where I'm at. Um, I want those two things, but I'm thinking, I was thinking just kind of, you know, is she sepsis with pneumonia? Now I'm also thinking sleep apnea. So yeah, these are, that's kind of where I'm at. I think there's more information that's needed, but those are kind of my, my two paths. All right. No, those are great thoughts. Uh, I don't know. I didn't uh, follow up with the uh, listener who emailed us with this regarding a CPAP device because it, you know, frankly, it never even occurred to me. So uh, that well, uh, sounds like maybe I should get a different co-host on the show. <laughs> sounds like <laughs> Mandy. Mandy. <laughs> I'm kidding. You, all you'll have to do is put up with his DSIR assignment like every time we record. Uh, so if you're good with that, you know, I'm. I'm <laughs> we agree. I we just record only episodes. Hop beer. So if I could get one or two of those, uh, I'm in. Yeah. All right. Perfect. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And we actually have an Umhoff's update. We got the beer. We'll have more on that later, but we got the beer. It's true. It is a great day. All right. So, uh, there they were, fire all around them. <laughs> all right. An EMT in the department sets out to try and obtain an auscultated blood pressure while Bob the Builder works. A department medic starts scribing for the scene and gets his hands on a medication list, uh, neither of which Bob remembers for the story. Thanks, Bob. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. Someone also... <laughs> Someone also put a nasal cannula on the patient. Uh, thank you to that person. Uh, and this, by the way, is what ends up being what Bob put together in terms of that HPI. All right. So the patient's chief complaint is of being sleepy. She denies any pain. She tiredly reports that she felt weak when she woke up today and that she's just been very tired and sleepy all day. He notes that she does sleep through some of the questions or at least dozes off shortly after answering some of the questions he's asked. Ooh, what about pupils? Sorry, did they check pupils yet? 
Uh, they did not check pupils. Okay. Dang it. Uh, proceed, sir. All right. She denies any falls or trauma. Bob asks about illness or infection, and the patient denies any. She denies any shortness of breath, nausea, vomiting, and she also denies taking any narcotic pain medications. Okay. Well, that was my next guess, but... I thought that might be on your and list. And you know, and if someone says they don't do narcotics... Then, I mean, then, then by God, they definitely, don't do narcotics. Definitely don't. Yep. Uh, <laughs> just that one medicine, that narcotic that starts with D. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I, I love giving, uh, okay, brief digression, listeners. I am so sorry for this, but you need to hear this. During my internship, my preceptor, um, we had a guy who we woke up with Narcan and he was, he was at a pharmacy of all places. And uh, the guy is like, no, no, I definitely didn't do any of that. And my preceptor goes, all right, yeah, this really, this really only cures one thing. And that's if you take narcotics. And then he goes, that... Uh, or if you've had green jello, it'll wake you up. That's it. The guy's like, you know, I did have some green jello. Green jello is what I had. <laughs> just like, <laughs> are you serious? <laughs> and my preceptor was like, yeah, they'll grab onto anything. Like, you just throw, so he throws out random stuff all the time. It's like, yeah, that, or if you were unconscious, but recently ate lobster. Sometimes this will like, even like I had lobster last night. And so he just get people <laughs> to confess the things that are absolutely asinine just so they will not confess to taking narcotics. All right. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Continue. And you know, the nurse at the uh, ED is going to be very confused where he's like, well, I had lobster, so that's uh, that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> Just like what? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, all right. Uh, so the scribe medic, lazily dubbed by me as Scribe, <laughs> tells Bob's partner Wendy uh, that they don't think the patient will fit on a stretcher. By the way, if they take this patient to anywhere else but emergency hospital, emergency room, I'm going to be disappointed <laughs> with your level of creativity going on. <laughs> They opt to contact dispatch and request that a bariatric ambulance come to the scene. Okay. And so Wendy agrees uh, and an ambulance with the bariatric stretcher and a lift setup is sent for. And the ETA is about 30 minutes and they are coming code one. So no lights, no sirens. Nope. Okay. Um, so just kind of a quick thing. Um, I'll just do a little kind of what I'm known for on the show is it, talking about the exciting systems and operations side of things. Uh, bariatric ambulances are typically a finite resource uh, in a lot of systems and they're ambulances that are set up with wider gurneys. Uh, in some cases, they will have a ramp and a winch set up where they can actually just winch uh, the patient into the back of the ambulance, which is super helpful, especially for your absolutely larger people. Uh, in emergency situations, usually these challenges can be overcome, um, but their availability is limited and in most systems, they are reserved for non-emergent uh, scenarios. And it looks like at this point, the crew seems to be treating this as, as non-emergent um, with accepting the 30-minute ETA and the, and the code one. But um, anyway, all right. Yeah, sweet. So meanwhile, near the patient, the fire EMT on blood pressure duty says that they aren't able to hear one after several attempts. So no blood pressure. Yep. So Bob takes over the task and basically hears a small amount of noise around the 70s systolic area. But Bob is also unsure if this is accurate as the needle seems to start bouncing a little higher up on the reading. He thinks around 90-ish. Uh, I've had this where you you basically go to listen and you hear it for like one, like, dum, and then it's yeah. just, and then it's nothing but needle bounces, but there's no sound. Mm -hmm. And I'm like... Uh, it's their blood pressure 68 over 68. Like, I don't, uh, right. I, I don't know. Right. <laughs> How does that work? Um, this is, yeah, like it's, it can be really hard 
to auscultate blood pressures on patients. I, it's th- th- that's the absolute truth. I think a lot of times, and Manny, this kind of goes back to your point during the Q and A session, is that uh, so often we forget our basics. And here's the here's the truth about the basic things: checking a pulse taking a blood pressure, listening to lung sounds. These are things that every provider should be able to do. And they are so much harder than we really give them credit for. We tend to kind of highlight things like intubation and cricothyrotomies and IVs as the hard things. But really, the basics are difficult if you don't practice them. And uh, yeah, 100% agree. Yep. All right. So Bob shares his findings with the team. In, and upon hearing this announcement, another fire medic, we're dubbing Paw Patrol Officer Marshall, <laughs> quickly moves in and establishes a 22-gauge IV in the left AC, which is the best they could get. Uh, I'll take it over nothing. I yeah, guess. right. Yeah. And a 500-milliliter bag of normal saline is started. I did ask. That was the only fluid they carried at the time. Normal saline? Okay. Yep. So uh, Bob is informed that a bariatric ambulance is, quote, on the way by scribe, and Bob agrees that it will be needed. So shortly afterwards, a 12 lead is performed and was essentially reported to be non-diagnostic. We don't have a copy of it. Uh, There was an intraventricular conduction delay, but otherwise nothing else of note per Bob. Uh, Oh, here we go. The patient's pupils are checked and noted to be equal and reactive. The patient is negative on a stroke scale. She remains somnolent, but does wake up when provoked and responds appropriately to the crew. And she responds fairly kindly to the crew as oh, well, nice. who keeps waking her up. That's not always the case. Nope. <laughs> Nor will it always be the case. Foreshadow, foreshadow, foreshadow. Oh. Foreshadow, foreshadow. I'm nice. excited now. Yeah, no. Can't afford uh, can't afford sound effects on our meager budget. So no, no, I have we to can. do a lot of them on my own. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. So Bob and everyone kind of shift from patient assessment treatment to planning ahead for the arrival of their ambulance. Bob decides that rather than moving into a different ambulance, they might just trade stretchers. Given the number of resources present on the scene, they don't anticipate uh, needing the use of the lift slash ramps slash wench that are set up in the other ambulance and would rather not risk finding that the bariatric ambulance isn't stocked up all the way. Oh, that that's kind of an indictment of the system there. Um, I would say though, I agreed setting up the, the, the lift and the ramps and all that stuff can take a while, especially yeah. and then like it breaks, you know? So yeah, if you've got yeah. the people to, to safely load, yeah, d- just, just use the people power and uh, the bigger gurney. All right, so the plan will be to place the patient on a large mega mover and haul her out to the stretcher outside down those uh, those steps and then lift her onto the stretcher and into the ambulance. Uh, Bob reports that they all felt there wasn't much to do aside from waiting for the unit, which I imagine means that a lot of patients, a lot of people were just kind of clustered outside and not at the patient side. Um, but, you know, there we are. So Bob is still outside talking with the scribe and Paw Patrol Officer Marshall when the ambulance supervisor arrives with the bariatric rig. And by the way, the estimated time from planning to ambulance arrival was about 10 minutes. So Bob stays outside and explains their plan to the supervisor, and then they go and fetch the stretcher. Scribe and Paw Patrol Officer Marshall go back to the patient and prepare to move her from the chair to the mega mover. Once the stretcher is in place, Bob and the supervisor head back into the house. The patient has, uh, at this point, the patient's been moved off her chair and is now laying supine on a mega mover 
with a discomforted look on her face. I have a feeling this isn't going to go well. No. (laughs) This is, yeah, this is, yeah. Okay, good. You got the stomach churn too. Perfect. (laughs) She's carried out by the team through the living room and out onto the stretcher. Once on the stretcher, Bob wakes her up and just to kind of check in with her. And he says that the patient is now just very irritated and almost agitated sounding when they respond. She was a you know kindly old lady inside and no longer is the case. I really want to know what her vitals are doing right now. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't know if you have them, but I just I, I really want to know. Yeah, don't we all? Bob also noted that she seemed much harder to rouse than previously. She's loaded into the ambulance and Bob gets in and connects the patient back onto their monitor. Wendy prepares them to depart. Paw Patrol Officer Marshall arrives at the side door and asks, Hey, uh, you think you want a rider? Yes. Bob the Builder is torn. The patient had no real complaints other than being sleepy. She was possibly hypotensive, but again, there is some doubt. Their autocuff couldn't be reading. They might not be hearing the sounds at the right spot. But... Bob doesn't imagine that there's going to be much more to do, but Bob is also unsettled by the fact that the patient seems quieter. Something felt off. So they said, yeah, I'll take a writer just in case. Good. And I want to take a quick moment here. Kind of what I'm seeing. So Mandy, we had this thing on the show where we often talk about confirmation bias, where we want something to be true. And so we tend to ignore evidence that says it's not and we tend to kind of grab on to hope that what we want to be true is true. And I'm kind of starting to see that form here because basically what we're saying is I have no data on the blood pressure, but the data I do have says it's probably low. But hey, maybe it's good. Maybe, maybe it's OK. But what I do appreciate, though, is that Bob didn't double down on that. And he said, hey, you know what? I'm unsure. I'm going to take some help. That move I appreciate. But I do feel like, like I mean, we're, we're kind of clinging into like, well, there might be hypotensive, but, you know, there's some doubt. Yeah. I is mean, there? how many times have a, has a hypotensive, like super sick patient's only complaint been, you know, oh, I'm just tired. Uh, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> all the out, time. Yeah. I, I think our, our last episode. God, also my kids featured. tell me they're tired and I want to check their blood pressure. <laughs> I'm kidding. (laughs) All right. So he says, yeah, I'll take a rider just in case. So Paw Patrol Fire Officer Marshall and a fire EMT jump in. So they depart the scene, code one to the hospital. The patient remains on her stretcher with her eyes closed, not speaking. And uh, Bob the Builder says, all right, let's uh, finish getting her back on the monitor and we'll get some repeat vitals. Paw Patrol Officer Marshall announces that they will check a blood pressure and the EMT uh, f- completes putting the patient on the cardiac monitor. Uh, Bob goes to try and wake the patient to talk with her. The patient doesn't wake up. Mm-mm. A sternal rub is performed with no change. PPO Marshall <laughs> nice. appears to be struggling to get a blood pressure. The EMT does get the patient on the monitor and Bob notices that the rhythm is both very wide and very slow. Uh, shit. I think she's arrested. Check and see. Does she have a pulse? Mm. PPO Marshall checks. Bob also checks and is unable to feel a carotid. Marshall is also unable to palpate one. 
Okay, start CPR and uh, upgrade to code three. All right, and that's lights and sirens for those listening. All right, so the EMT immediately starts doing chest compressions while Bob gets out their BVM. Marshall gets out an amp of Epi and starts configuring it, but as this is happening, a surge of white (laughs) vanilla smelling fluid erupts from the patient's mouth and pours across her face and cascades and waterfalls onto the floor of the ambulance. Oh, goodness gravy. So, Chris, what do you think happened next? Uh, Pandemonium ensues. They try and suction. They try and mess now with this messed up airway. Um, Maybe they try and like, like, I don't know, like keep keep the ambulance from flooding full of vanilla predigested vanilla oh, there it is there that's the what it that's is. the answer. see this is how you know you've been around a while yeah let's let him drown in that airway yes. uh, but by all means my backpack's right there let's uh <laughs> no the, let's bob go said the first thing they did was they literally reached over to their cabinet where they keep their linen and grabbed all the linen and just stuck it on the floor <laughs> creating a makeshift dam between the front of the ambulance and the back to, oh god to stop the copious amounts of fluid that we're just that's my jacket <laughs> <laughs> don't get it on my shoe I went like reach for the suction just get just get the towels <laughs> <laughs> patient will be uh, fine do you know how hard it yeah. is to get those jackets yep all right so uh after after stopping the fluid from pouring into the connected cab uh yeah which you know to their credit probably only took like 10 seconds to pull off it's a pro move i uh, i approve i i totally i would totally do that um having had vomit rushed forward into oh, the yeah. front of the ambulance yeah uh, I, I, I i've been in situations where there's so much vomit back there you look down it's rolling over your boots you feel like a dinghy boat captain <laughs> taking on water people are grabbing equipment out of walls it looks more like someone's trying to keep a submarine from sinking and like that's what you're really trying to do like it's <laughs> can't do it captain i don't have the power (laughs) (laughs) i can't do it perfect uh well you know what that's gonna come into play here too so bob then grabs the oral suction device and tries to suction out the patient's mouth but to no avail you know he's probably at a yank hour not a decanto that's probably the problem definitely the case uh the flow of vomit just appears endless so epi was pushed cpr continues but Bob is alarmed by the amount of fluid that he is suctioning. A mi- solid minute has gone by with no change. And Bob feels that, you know, like, oh, my God, I, we need to deliver a breath to this patient. But we can't because there's all this fucking vomit that is still pouring out. Yeah. Um, you know, and they said, uh, Bob says, I know we're not supposed to suction this long, but it won't stop. Stop. And Bob says that to the group. And aside from basically like a sympathetic shrug, there are no other ideas offered. CPR continues. Bob does not feel that he could successfully intubate the patient just based on her physique, based on the fact that the airway is completely filled with uh, this white fluid vomit. Um, they would also be having to use a DL laryngoscope as they do not have video laryngoscopy or video. Lar- Oof, why am I struggling over that? Word? You're doing Jeez. a great job, though. But. They don't have <laughs> emphasis on the wrong syllable. Exactly. <laughs> Unsure of what to do. I am 90% certain I've made that same joke on this show. First of all, she agrees with my rants. And 
I'm going to, you know what? I'm going to do that job saving Dr. House moment where Dr. House in that one episode fired the guy who just, you know, immediately hit on all his kind of rants. And then at the end, the the guy's like, you know, Dr. House goes like, hey, you know why I had to let you go, right? And the guy's like, yeah, you don't need two of you. (laughs) Just saying. Yeah, Yeah. there we go. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Sorry, Mandy. You're out. Just kidding. (laughs) Unsure of what to do, Bob stops suctioning. He grabs the king airway that they have and proceeds to place it in the patient's mouth, hoping, and I'm curious, Mandy, what your thoughts on this are uh, after this. Uh, that the distal balloon will stem the vomit once it's been inflated. Uh, instead, what happens is Vanilla Insure just pours out the top of the King Airway with every compression. Uh, Bob then retrieves a tracheal suctioning tube and goes ahead and sets that up. And by the way, while this is happening, uh, Marshall and the EMT have switched roles. So... So he's essentially like NG tubing this person in a way. So he's got an ET tube in the esophagus and he's putting a suction catheter down that ET tube. He has a King airway. Or OG, the, I guess. He, oh, King got, airway. He's My got bad. the King airway in, in the patient's mouth. And okay. vanilla insure is essentially coming out the top of that. No matter with what. With every compression. And so he's just trying to suction that off and... Uh, it's not working. No, not working. All right. Uh, by the way, while this is happening, Marshall um, and the EMTs have switched roles. They've continued to do the, you know, the code stuff. And Wendy has actually helpfully called in report over the radio on behalf of the crew. Uh, stellar move, Wendy. Way to go. All right. While suctioning is occurring and their canister was filling, because that was sort of one of my things. I was like, well, is the suction actually like working and they're like, no, it filled the canisters. The canister was filling. It just felt like it might as well not have been. Uh, Bob described it as essentially, it felt like trying to dry off with a wet towel while standing out in a downpour. <laughs> that Okay. Visual. Bob again comments about the lack of being able to deliver a breath to the patient due to the, uh, you know, the airway obstruction. But at this point doesn't know what else to do. Um, The fluid at least has stopped pouring out the top, but the airway is still so saturated with fluid that they don't even know if they can deliver a breath to the patient. They continue to suction. And then after what seems like an eternity, they try to deliver a breath, but it's, it just sounds incredibly wet, juicy, and they're unsure if it's working. They did use an end tidal CO2 device, but it almost immediately became saturated with the fluid and just didn't work. Oh, wow. Uh, not too long after, by the way, the transport was about, they estimate seven to 10 minutes uh, with their recollection with CPR starting just a minute or two in. So mm, five to seven minutes of not delivering a breath to the patient. Oh. They arrive at the emergency department. They turn <laughs> over care to the ED staff who continue CPR Uh, the crew immediately reported the trouble they were having with the airway. The ED doctor is able to suction and then uses a glide scope to secure the tube. Bob delivers, uh, excuse me, Bob believes that the patient did survive at least to go to the ICU, but no follow-up was available afterward. I'm guessing though, given the description here, the outcome is likely poor. Yeah. Yeah, either a hypoxic event or the you know, lung injury from all the fluid 
from all the vomit essentially just going in there because i know lungs like one thing and that's air yeah and Ooh, I, they do they don't like vanilla and sure chocolate would have been all right but. right <laughs> <laughs> Let the peanut butter chocolates where it's at. Here's the, the worst part about this call right now for me yeah. uh, is that I actually use a vanilla protein powder that I don't know if I can anymore. <laughs> I, uh, I, I yeah. think you've taken that from me. Um, so, Manny, so to me, there are there are some issues kind of like from the start um, to get to this point. I'm not sure we ever had to get to this point of a bad airway. But, Manny, I've got to pick your brain about the airway management of this bariatric patient here, because I mean, let's, we had insure vomit everywhere. The medic didn't want a suction. How would you, if this was your patient kind of walk us through how you would have tackled this? Sure. Um, well, even before attacking the airway itself, I think a couple of good talking points to keep in mind with this particular patient is uh one positioning you know she she has made it a full-time job to be in an upright position she lives in that that's chair. true we're getting her out we're on the mega mover we're laying her flat physiology of the morbidly obese patient will tell you that that added tissue and organs and extra weight on the chest is just one of the components that you need to take into consideration when positioning the morbidly obese patient. That, that's a great point. So it's almost like their airway problems started way before she ever vomited. Absolutely. Um, and so we take somebody who is dependent on being upright and laying them flat when they are already have some level of altered level of or some some degree of altered level of consciousness and then I think it was really interesting, too, when Spencer uh, starts describing that when he tried to wake her up, she was now agitated. So, um, mm, again, yeah. it's really easy for me to sit here uh, in this nicely lit climate controlled office of mine and be an armchair quarterback and say, oh, well, it's obvious, isn't it? But when we all know in the middle of it, in the thick of it, that's not necessarily as easy to pick up on, but our patient went from somnolent to obtunded. Yeah, absolutely. They did. Absolutely. did. And you saw that agitation, which to me, agitation in a patient that I'm trying to oxygenate uh, is a sign that I'm not doing a good job. And that was why I really wanted to know the vitals right at that moment. Like, okay, you've got her supine. You have shifted supinating her. Not only impacts your airway, we've been talking about an iffy blood pressure this entire time too. And I mean, it, it, it impacts everything from hemodynamics. And then of course, uh, like, Manny just beautifully said, in the bariatric patient, it's even more so going to impact airway. So, yeah, it, I, I want to know what's going on with that patient right then, but I don't get it. I know. And you're not going to like what I have to say next. Um, uh -oh. It doesn't. And, and uh, Chris, I love you. I'm just going to say it. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter what's going on with the patient next. What if their blood pressure was 90 over 60? OK, what if it was 120 over 80? All right. What we're looking at here is a patient. We've already been tipped off that. The ventilatory status and the oxygenation is an issue. Once That's you have true. established that there is an issue with the airway, we have to stop. There's a reason why it's A, B, C. You don't go to B That's until true. you figure out A. So it doesn't matter. I don't. I don't care what her her stats are. I don't. I don't care what her blood pressure is or could be, um, because I know that I had a patient that was somnolent has changed. Um, in the way of 
uh, by agitation, which tell me in this particular patient any other obvious reason why the patient would go from pleasant to agitated other than hypoxia right now. Exactly. You're right, because that's kind of that's, that's the only signs we had. You are absolutely 100 percent right. There's there's was way too many signs before we ever got to this point. That this was going to be a problem. So you're right. Who gives a shit what the vital signs are? Doesn't right matter. Now? They're bad. Right. That's what they are. They're bad. They're bad. They're bad. And they're going to continue to be bad. So then we go from obtunded to uh, now we are in some form of arrest. And I, if I were a betting girl, I'd say that this was uh, bradycardia secondary to hypoxia, which led to oh, arrest. That, that an irritable heart does not want to beat. Right. And it's already got a prolonged. Um, I think you had mentioned that there was a widened QRS. So we have some some issues already, some impedance with repolarization. We already have some issues going on. And now add on top of that, she's not feeling great and she's not breathing very well. So we lay her down flat. She's sleepy. She won't wake up. And despite all of the agitation and and trying to get her to uh, to wake up, she won't. And we check and she is uh, not not, she doesn't have a palpable pulse. So we start resuscitation. Um, that's great mm-hmm. that it's, uh, but the first thing that I would do as, as the copious amounts of, uh, free flowing insure is coming out would be immediately heads up. I'm going to put her up. I don't want her flat. Yeah. I want to displace that weight off of her chest. I want to bring her up so that that vomit goes forward and not back down into her lungs. And then my first reaction, again, easy for me to armchair quarterback, would be to grab suction. If if the yank hour isn't working, fun fact, yank hour was developed, I believe it was in the 40s, don't quote me on that. Um, but it was, it was designed for the uh, operating room and it was to gently remove clots off of the tonsils during a tonsillectomy. Ah, I did not know that. There's nothing about what we do in our airway management that's gentle. No, there isn't. Even if it is completely (laughs) liquid, that's not enough of suction to be able to keep up with the volume that she's producing. So pulling the yank hour off and just using the hose, it's, it's not ideal, but... I'll tell you, I've only done two or three tonsillectomies in the field. (laughs) <laughs> and so that's uh that you were glad to have your yank hour yeah right. Man- mandy here's a question for you so the patient i mean the patient had to be moved out of the house and it sounds like ideally you know we don't want to lay this patient down which i i'm totally down with mm-hmm. uh, oh. uh but i'm um how would you suggest what you know in an ideal world what would be the best way to get the patient out to where we're not laying them flat and adding all that pressure and preventing that you know gas exchange which then contributes to the hypoxia which then you know presumably contributes to the patient's d- demise absolutely uh, much uh, to the chagrin of everybody sure maybe an extra person up by the head so you've got three up on the head that they can mm-hmm. maybe tilt it up just a little bit it doesn't need to be a drastic move but we need yeah. to have gravity work with us not against us and i think it's also that there's another point here i mean we all know that sometimes you're in the field sometimes you got to be like look maybe this is suboptimal but it's the only way i can get her out my problem though is uh the paramedic at one point you know kind of left the scene to talk to the supervisor and then came back in to find her supine so I start worrying about like, like here's the thing, if you have to do that where her head's going to be at a less than optimal angle, minimize that time frame, like minimize it. Like, sure. okay, basically the, the moment we, we she's not going to be in this position 
any longer than she has to be. So the moment we move her to this, we're moving out the door so we can sit her back up again. Yeah. And it, like that, that would be like my two cents. And then like yeah. Mandy said, like if you can get someone else just to put up on the head or even throw some padding between the mega mover and her, I know it's a canvas, but I mean, you can still try and influence Rambler. that in some way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. No, absolutely. Now here's a question. Let's <clears throat> say they did those things. They still get the patient out. She's still, you know, we'll say we, tr we tried that. We tried keeping her upright. Didn't work. We get her out there. And now she's at the point where she's arresting. You have that cascade of vanilla and sure. This episode brought to you by Ensure. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be Ensure. Make it vanilla. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> better for your lungs. Uh, <laughs> uh, so you're saying like, it, all right, so don't at this point, don't do CPR. Like just sit the patient upright. Suck, you know, get the tube off if the yank hour is, is failing, which, you know. Fun fact, it does. It's going to. Uh, it's yeah. going to. Uh, and just try and suction that up. Now, that'll seem counterintuitive to the, you know, hey, C-A-B, right? Sure. Well, and you can do both. He has an extra rider, right? So he brought somebody uh, sure. with him. So go ahead. Start yeah. impressions. That's great. Uh, but my job now is I am I am wholly honed in and focused on the airway. So that starts with positioning. It starts with the actual head itself or ramping the patient, putting something underneath their shoulders and um, potentially the back of their neck so that their ear is better aligned with their sternal notch if they're more flat. But um, heads up CPR, we've heard of that. It's been bounced around throughout our industry for the last few years. But um, keep that head up. Allow gravity to work in our favor. And then um, very aggressive with the suctioning. If it's coming out faster than you can do anything, you can't give a breath, then, I mean, we can't get to the B. We're still at A. So, again, back to basics. Perfect. We are stuck at A until we fix something. Yeah, that, that I, I want to segue real quick and briefly into this suction issue because this is something that uh, I did a little bit of research on. Uh, for this episode after hearing this story, because, you know, the, the big thing that, you know, Bob was, was, uh, you know, was worried about was, you know, you remember, you, everybody remembers the, you know, NREMT skill sheet for suctioning, like thou shalt not suction for longer than 15 seconds. You know, I remember going through my EMT skill sheet and my, you know, the paramedic skill sheet, and that was in there. And I, you know, it's like, okay, huh? here it is a minute later. And I'm still fucking suctioning vanilla insure out of this patient. Oh my God. What do I, you know, what, what would I do in that situation? And, you know, I'm, I, I can understand those kind of competing values. And I, uh, I want to bring up, you know, essentially like, you know, we'll see this in our school, in, in exams, in protocols that, you know, no more than 15 seconds. And I can understand where it comes from. You know, we're worried about hypoxia and the act of, you know, suctioning does interrupt breathing. I mean, like personally, I can breathe around a suction. I've been to the dentist. I know what's up, but I'm also awake and breathing on my own, uh, which isn't usually the patient that EMS has to deal with because, you know, chances are if you're suctioning a patient's airway and they're not doing it for you, then you probably are also having to breathe for that patient. And if you're doing the suctioning, then you're probably not doing the breathing at the same time. Um, and so it makes sense that we want to limit that hypoxia, you know, that, that time. 
but this is a weird fucking rule and I'm going to stand by that. <laughs> okay. Uh, and I think a rule sucks. And they, if they stopped suctioning, there was no way they were going to get air into the breathing That's into, true. Our, into our lungs. Uh, and again, all that, the sweet kicker is just all that, uh, that sweet, sticky vanilla insure. <laughs> <laughs> it's wonderful. Go out and buy a crate today. <laughs> Which is going to um, be thick and it's going to be viscous. It's not going to be real watery and fluid. It's going to be more difficult to suck up. And it's going to just go right into the lungs if you don't suction it. And that's and then she's super dead anyway. Hey, do you think if you're shopping on Amazon and you go to buy like insure, it's like customers also bought trash can for living room, <laughs> Kleenex, you know, like that kind of stuff. You can just buy it all as a pack. Does the mag light come as well? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, your garbage mag light. That's yeah. in there too. <laughs> Take it right out of the box, put it yeah. in your garbage. It's already there. <laughs> So I guess the point is the medic was worried about the length of time they had to suction because of this arbitrary rule. Right. And they felt a pressure to, you know, move away from suctioning and try putting a king airway in, which, you know, I I give them credit for thinking of that. You know, the distal balloon, maybe it doesn't seem like it did, but boy, it was sure worth a shot. Uh, Sure. But here, here's the thing. Uh, Dan Limmer uh, is a paramedic, renowned EMS speaker, expert on EMS education, uh, actually does really, he does a thorough trashing of this rule. Uh, oh, good. So I like it nice. already because uh, it f- matches my own beliefs. And so here it is. And he's a lot smarter than me. So I, yeah, I was like, yeah, this smart guy says this thing. I, he has a uh, post titled Suctioning in the Real World. Uh, and basically, his take is that educational institutes uh, shouldn't teach shitty dumb, those are my words, rules, like don't suction for longer than 15 seconds, but instead teach critical thinking regarding the task. And he breaks it down like so. Hypoxia is bad. Suctioning contributes to hy- hypoxia. Stomach contents in lungs will kill patients. Thus, the rule would be suction quickly and efficiently to remove vomit or secretions before ventilating. And that would have been, I think, the thing here is, yeah, uh, you know, positioning definitely, you know, that heads up position that you talked about and just continue suctioning. There is no reason that the he couldn't have just left the suction catheter in like in the salad technique. And Absolutely. then tried to stick a, you know, a, something around that, the, the king airway or intubate if the cords become more clear, you know, with yeah. the better positioning and the suctioning. But Gosh, and there's, there's several different ways that you could remedy that. But I, I agree with him. Absolutely. Uh, suctioning is not going to kill this patient. Hypoxia is. So we yeah. got to figure out a way to interrupt this persistent hypoxia. Absolutely. And I think this is just to kind of circle back to our listener question earlier. Um, this question just this whole this whole call is basically a really long way to say Mandy's right, um, because this is another thing where a superglottic airway had you been in a system that because there are systems out there that have gone to SGAs only that we do that we do SGAs right off the bat. This is a prime example of an SGA being placed and not having any impact on the patient whatsoever. Uh, if anything, it made things worse by essentially just trapping secretions, well, or not secretions, buckets upon buckets of insure in vanilla this patient. Insure. Vanilla insure, vanilla insure, uh, now with essential nutrients and added iron uh, in this patient's airway. Right. Like, that's, uh, but critical that, thinking. That, that, 
would have been very, very helpful in this case. Again, armchair quarterbacking. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, take, getting the suction down and kind of getting it down towards that left side, the bottom left side. Um, and, and continuing, um, burying that suction down into the esophagus. Uh, if I can't see the trachea right away, I've got a bougie. Hopefully, I mean, potentially you could have a bougie. You could, you could oh. blindly insert. Oh, we, we love the bougie on EMS 2020. I just start with the bougie. That, yeah. that, that, that's why I start. I preload my bougies with ET tubes because I'll, I'll be dead honest. When I first started out in the field, I was not good at innovating. I failed at it. It's kind of like when Spencer started out in the field, he was terrible at 12 leads. He's now probably one of the best uh, people at 12 leads th- that I know. I would probably take my 12 lead from my physician to Spencer just to make sure that doctor's right. Um, that's he's <laughs> really making a mistake. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. By all means. I like yeah. how you're preloading your bougie with a tube rather than loading your tube with a bougie. I like it. I dig it. Fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you don't know the kind of bougie that Chris is using. It's really <laughs> one of those giant crayons that they give to kids. <laughs> it's a novelty item. Uh, right. So, all right. Well, let's, I kind of want to bring up one other point about this call. And I think that th- there may have been potential in this call. And I think Man- Mandy hit on it with positioning right off the bat. But I think even if we go before that, I, I think there was some missteps. And that is, is that Bob, Mr. Builder, as I'll call him, um, I didn't see a ton of reassessment. Now I know like Manny brought up a great point. When we lay this person flat and the agitation was present, you really didn't need to know what the vitals were. You, you knew, you know, like you knew that they were going to be bad, but there is even kind of a, a part where I felt like the patient's kind of sitting around for a long period of time and there's some key things that we just never got the big thing right off the bat the patient should have gotten while they were sitting up is some lung sounds and it's like hey we can't really get a blood pressure and then when we did get one it was probably low i mean to me like this could have been a patient and i don't know and unfortunately we don't have the follow-up this could have been a patient that could have had an ammonia and could have been septic, hence the low blood pressure, hence you have these other things, and then you have something you can treat. It could have been someone that had, you know, sleep apnea because they've been sitting in their chair all the time, they fell asleep, their hypoxia got low. But there are things that we don't know about this patient that maybe had they been addressed appropriately first off, we would have never had to go down uh, the vanilla insure fountain road. And <laughs> yeah. um and I feel like to me, that was kind of the critical piece missing from the beginning is that we did not do our initial assessment needed to be more thorough. And then there needed to be some form of reassessment before I, we decided to lay this person the flat. the 500 of saline that they gave to the patient who, well, I heard it at 70. Right. Uh, didn't have an effect and was presumably septic because I, I much, imagine that's that, like that was what I read throughout all of this is like, yeah, warm, pale, dry skin. Yeah. You know, uh, shitty blood pressure, sleepy. Not very yeah. tachycardic, though. Not very tachycardic, but not always. You don't need that yeah. for sepsis. You do need the high respiratory rate, which you do. You know, which again, she had. she had, but that might be a physiological yeah. piece. Uh, I I was thinking sepsis. Yeah. Uh, in which case, she probably needed way more fluid to keep a you know a right. perfusing pressure. So, and then I think, and I think Manny hit on the head. I, th- I think this person was teetering there, and then we went ahead and positioned her poorly, caused hypoxia, and now she's coated. Yeah. 
You know, and so I think that that's kind of what I think is going on. Manny, how do you feel? You feel that's a that's a good candidate for what may happen? Uh, absolutely. There's there. It's really easy to be in the moment and say, oh, well, let's just, we'll let this ride for a minute. Let's see how she does. Let's, let's see how she does. They had a 10 minute waiting period for the bariatric ambulance to arrive. So well, they had 30 minutes. Well, they had ten, there was, you know, there was 30 minutes was the original ETA. And oh, then never I think mind. there was a little time spent. I don't think it ended up being 30 minutes that they were on scene. Oh, OK, my bad. My bad. Um, but no, I mean, they didn't time. Have, yeah, they had they had time, though. They had all the time. Yep. So all my first time. question would be, why is why is she so sleepy? You know, and so exactly. maybe some further indication or some further investigation, at least into why, why she was so somnolent. It's really easy to forget about the physiology of, of the bariatric patient when we're task saturated. Absolutely. That's a good, that's a good thing. We've, have we, we've talked about task saturation as well. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah, it's absolutely true. There's too many things to, to to get a handle on. And that's why, that's why triage is so important, not just, uh, you know, in MCIs, but also in your brain. Uh, Well, with that, I think we have arrived at the end of today's episode. Mandy, is there anything else you'd like to say about this patient or airways or this call? Uh, I think that if we, Ultimately, if, if, if airway becomes the number one issue, then we can't really progress in our skills and assessment and our treatment and our transport until that's addressed. Now, whether that's concurrent or we st- everybody stop, let's just take a second, let's figure out what's going on. She's now combative. Uh, she... You know, laying down isn't good for her. So let's let's stop for a second. Let's kind of regroup. Let's figure out what we need to do to to manage the airway, and then we can move forward. Absolutely, I think that is a beautiful summarization of what needed to be done on this call. Uh, so with that, I do want to remind everybody that in the Denver, Colorado area, there is going to be an amazing opportunity coming up in April. Go practice bariatric airway management on actual bariatric cadavers. I can't emphasize how amazing i can't emphasize enough how amazing uh, experiences in cadaver labs are mandy if you could let us know, uh, know again the dates and times of uh, of the classes yeah absolutely this is going to be april 5th 6th 8th and 9th there's going to be a morning opportunity from 8 to noon or an afternoon opportunity from 1 to 5 and we will be plumbing at least one of the donors to vomit. I was going to do some windshield wiper fluid and some food coloring, but after this episode, I'm thinking I might go buy some Insure. Yeah, Vanilla Insure. That's where it's got to be. That's right. All right. And just to remind everyone, that is called the, you are putting on the Bariatric Airway Boot Camp, correct? That is correct. Yes. Awesome. Perfect. Well, I think it's going to be an amazing experience. Uh, That's where people need to go. Mandy, thank you so much for joining us, answering our listeners' questions, and actually adding some um, legitimacy to this show. You know, someone, someone with a little bit of knowledge and experience there than these two. Yeah, he's doing it. I don't know about legitimate, but I sure appreciate you giving me the opportunity to nerd out for a little bit on Airways. Hey, anytime. And if we can ever get you back on the show, we're going to do it. OK, Sounds uh, with that, everyone, thanks again for listening. Uh, if you don't already, why not follow us on social media? We are on Facebook at EMS 20 slash 20. We are on Instagram at EMS 2020 show. And you can send us an email with your tales of success or woe to EMS 2020 podcast at gmail.com. Uh, with that, Spencer, awkwardly take us out. Oh, 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 yeah. I'm killing this. You now. have so many relationships nope. in this life. 
only one or two will last. What are you, you go reading? through all the pain and strife? Oh, I know. Then what you he's turn reading. your back and they're gone so fast. Oh, yeah. Okay. And they're gone so fast. Yeah. yeah. Mm, bop. <laughs> there it is. Ba-da-ba-da. Ba-da. Ba-da-ba-da. Oh, yeah. <laughs>